on this episode of Musonomics. Well, I think that for a lot of us, you know, especially for people in the independent music scene and punk rock and you know all that, I think that vinyl never went away. It just got smaller and and uh, a little harder to find. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, and that was Eric Astor, president of Furnace, a company that manufactures vinyl records. On the subject of today's show, the vinyl resurrection. Hot off last week's Record Store Day, we're taking a fresh look at an old medium, vinyl records. About this time last year, we did our very first show on the state of physical music retailing, and we concentrated on vinyl. We took a look at how Record Store Day helped revive a segment of the music industry and saved local record stores. But there's more to the vinyl story than the retail effect. In this episode of Musonomics, we look further up the production line. First, we'll hear from Josh Friedlander, the RIAA's data guy, about the continued growth of vinyl records. Then, we'll hear from Billy Fields, the vinyl guy at Warner Music Group, about whether or not vinyl sales might be headed for a plateau, and on the production capacity bottleneck that's still holding back vinyl sales and manufacturing. And Eric Astor will take us through the vinyl manufacturing process and into the factory from finished audio to a finished, pristine, pressed record. But first, a vinyl sales report card from the RIAA's Josh Friedlander. Josh is the Senior VP of Strategic Data Analysis at the RIAA which just released its 2015 year-end report on music sales and shipments. Josh, how big was vinyl in 2015? So last year, vinyl was a bit more than $400 million, and remarkably, it grew 32% compared with the prior year. Considering it's a century-old format, I, I really think that's incredible growth. The last time vinyl sales were this big was 1988, almost 30 years ago. And what percentage of the overall market for recorded music was that? Well, vinyl is a lot of fun to talk about, but it's still really uh, a niche at only about 6% uh, of the total market. But if we look at the physical market, which is still about a third of all sales in the U.S., vinyl was one-fifth of the physical market. What were the biggest selling vinyl records of the year? Well, vinyl really appeals to a broad group of music fans. The best-selling albums were a mix of pop hits and all-time classics. Adele and Taylor Swift, of course, are at the top of all the charts for 2015. But in vinyl, there's also lots of classic rock like the Beatles and Pink Floyd and alternative music, too. So it's a little bit different from what you see in the CD or the download charts. Who is actually driving the vinyl resurgence? Who are they and why vinyl and why now? Well, that's really a great question, and I think there are lots of answers. I, I don't think we can narrow that down to just one thing. Um, it's all kinds of buyers. Some people love the warm, high-def sound. Uh, other people might like the really large album art and great liner notes. And, you know, in an increasingly digital age, vinyl gives fans a, a more tangible way, a more direct way of connecting with their favorite artists. When someone shows you their vinyl collection, it's really easy to see how big a music fan they are. 
Do you have a projection going forward for how fast vinyl will continue to grow? You know, it started from kind of a small base, but vinyl's been growing at a double-digit pace every year for about a decade now. And with great events like Record Store Day, I don't think there's any reason to think that's going to stop in 2016. So this uptick in vinyl sales has been around for nearly a decade. As vinyl continues to grow, questions arise about how long that growth will be sustainable. Long playing 33 RPM vinyl records were first introduced by Columbia Records in 1948 and replaced 78 RPM shellac, which sounded bad and was limited to five minutes per side. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere. But At this point, vinyl doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. But what does the future look like for a medium that's been around since the inception of the modern music industry? For answers to these questions, we turn to Billy Fields of Warner Music Group. Billboard has called him Warner's Vinyl Guy, and for good reason. He's been around the vinyl industry for years, and as his Twitter bio explains, his main task is to get the vinyl to the vinyl sellers. Billy, what's driving this whole vinyl resurgence? Well, if it's a resurgence, it's an amazing one. I think that really what we're talking about now is the maturing of a format that ends up being what people want to do when it comes to listening to music. They want to do it a different way than MP3s through earbuds, or even 320 MP3s or, or high-res. Or they're looking for this different experience. So what's fueling it if it, is, in fact, is a resurgence and not just a matured format that continues to have some sort of yearly growth that you know, we can all be sort of start to peg to and understand what it will do? What's fueling it is a desire to reconnect to music. So there's that piece of it. There's a nostalgic piece to the resurgence. There's also a new sort of acceptance of, oh, I can listen to 21 Pilots or Adele or Justin Bieber on LP because that's the music I'm passionate about and I can show my true passion by saying, hey, look at the thing that I have that proves that I do. It's hard to show your complete digital music collection with little thumbnails of artwork to your friends to prove who you are. But I think it's a lot easier when you have a record rack, even if it's only a handful of records and a record player, you can show people, oh, this is kind of who I am, this is what I'm about. So there's that piece of it too. Looking forward, this is a segment of the market that's growing. How fast is it growing? So two years ago, the market was up 52% year over year. And last year, it was up 30% year over year. So far through 14 weeks, as SoundScan measures the market, we're up a bit over 11%. So the growth curve over the last two years has certainly slowed, but I consider this to be um, on the way to about a 15 plus market this year. And then just as we talk about this stuff, we think it's a couple more years of that, and then we'll see what happens with plateauing. So who's buying the records and where are they buying them? They are young, at this point I'll say young boys and girls, young men and women, a couple of examples. Barnes & Noble has been carrying vinyl now for about a year and a half. They've really embraced the format. They're very, very strong in that sort of upper demo women. So anywhere from, say, 29 to 39, they're very strong in their stores for that. 
when you look at someone like an Urban Outfitters, obviously they're bending incredibly young. So in some cases, the records they're selling, you're really hitting men and women that are as young as 15. I talked to a good friend of mine, Rob Roth, who runs Vintage Vinyl over in Fords, New Jersey. He's been there 32, 33 years now, I think. Long time. And he said that over the last few years, what he's noticed is the average age of his customer has dropped easily 20 years. So he used to be looking at mostly men, mid to late 40s, which sort of lines right up with sort of who he is, who I am, that sort of age of the old guys that bought records. And now it's kids. In our vinyl show last year, we referred to Stephen Freer's 2000 movie, High Fidelity, where John Cusack and Jack Black play your archetypal, judgmental, snobbish record store guys. Can I have it then? No. No, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that sells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. But with places like Barnes & Noble and Urban Outfitters finding such success in vinyl, that type of high-fidelity era record store, where you'll be judged on your taste and treated accordingly, isn't so easy to find. Stores actually have a really hard time doing that anymore because it's expected for you to have a really good experience when you shop. So. You don't see a whole lot of that. What you see are passionate music fans that really want to help you out and find the record you're looking for, um, whether that's a CD or a record or a 7-inch or a DVD or whatever it is. How's this been for the turntable business? So you can look at all the anecdotal evidence, whether or not it's walking into Pottery Barn, Target, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, I can probably name a few more of those type of stores that actually have a line of turntables. So they're selling turntables. Now, I would not call those devices turntables in the true sense of the word because they're not the kind of device that I would want to put my records on. I would not want to play my records on those turntables. But there are a whole nother level of turntables that are out there that are not sort of the big brands of like Denon, Sony, Autotechnica, um, that I'm not sure how they're, well, they're measured or reported. Um, I believe that when you know, Amazon says that their largest home electronics item for the holiday season last year was a turntable. And then when HMV in the UK says that the week of Christmas they were selling a turntable a minute, that means that this is also really, really good for the turntable business. Billy, what is it that vinyl does uniquely for the relationship between bands and fans? I think at its heart, it shows you the effort that the band has put itself through in order to make something for the fan. So there's that piece, just the, um, this has been made. Because no matter how many records we make or we sell, right? Last year, the market sold about 12 million full-length albums. That's a small number in the, in the grand scope of things. But it's still almost a handmade format. The, num the way the presses run, how many records you can make per day, the process you have to go through to make those records. It is not bespoke, and I will never use that term to describe what this is. It's a manufacturing process, but it's a small manufacturing process. And it's very personal. You have press operators that know how their presses move and make sounds, and when things are not running correctly, they know what to do to make it get back on track. I understand there's more demand than there is manufacturing capacity available, especially this time of year. What's the story? 
Well, I believe that the last brand new presses were manufactured in either the late 70s or the early 80s. So between the early 80s and the present, no new machines have been produced. Now, what I just said is not factually correct because there are actually now a number of people around the world that are making new machines. There's a company in Germany called Newbuilt that's making a, a new press that's based on the design of the Feinbuilt. Palace in Germany is making a new press that's based on, I think, the Tulex Alphas. So they're now making presses. So up until that point, up until I'd say the last, call it nine to 12 months, there were no new presses. It was just everybody hustling to find old mothballed presses. And they are continuing to find those presses. Um, you know, you find 10 down in a Mexico City uh, warehouse. You find 13 in a Chicago warehouse. Um, Rip V was a company up in Canada that closed. He was only, I think, operating four presses, but he, I think he had another 14 that were in storage. So all those found their way into all these other plants that have opened. So you may not have new presses coming online, but you do have new pressing plants coming online. So there is some action to actually come back and add to the overall capacity to sort of alleviate that whole demand crush. So is there a big backlog for record labels that want to press vinyl records? The overall backlog is pretty big, yes. Um, I don't want to pretend at all that somehow it's not big because when you talk to specific plants, you could have anywhere from you know 12 to 30 weeks back orders and that's a lot you know when you ideally want to try and have a record from sort of all parts in test pressing approved let's start making it to delivery in under eight weeks when you're talking about 30 it's going to be tough this production backlog caused in part by a shortage of vinyl presses is one of the biggest challenges facing vinyl today but it's not only a shortage of presses that causes vinyl production to lag behind demand, it's the process itself. Billy Fields called the process not quite bespoke, but in many ways handmade. So how exactly do you make a vinyl record? For that, we turn to Eric Astor, head of Furnace, a vinyl manufacturing company that recognized the vinyl resurgence early on, and has since become an industry leader in finding solutions to the particular problems that vinyl presents. Eric, where does the process start? You know, for the last you know, 20 years, people have moved over to digital because it's generally a cheaper way of recording. So we could either take digital files or what we love is we like uh, analog tape. So before it gets to you, an artist or label takes that mixed, unmastered recording either digital file or analog tape, to a mastering studio where the file is transferred onto something called a lacquer, essentially a blank record made of acetate rather than vinyl. What's the mastering process like? Basically, you're, you're playing music through what looks like a pretty beefy-looking turntable, and then instead of a, a playback stylus, there's actually a cutting head at the end of that stylus. It basically transfers the, the vibrations of the sound that are coming through that stylus, and it, it basically cuts a continuous groove from the outside to the inside of the record. So when you're done, you basically have a lacquer that looks like a record. That physical lacquer then travels from studio to manufacturing plant. And from there, we get it, we receive it, we spray it with a silver uh, spray that basically is now conductive. And with that, we can put it into what they call a galvanic bath. 
And the galvanic bath is basically a solution with nickel, and then we charge it with electricity that allows the metal to grow onto that silver that we uh, sprayed the lacquer onto, and basically to create a, a mirrored opposite. Once that uh, process is done, you can actually peel those two layers apart, and you get what we call the father plate or the master plate. And that is a negative of the original cut. And then we go through the same process to create a mother plate, and that is now a positive. And we can actually play the mother plate to make sure that there's no imperfections in the groove. The mother and father plates look like shiny metal records. After checking the mother plate for imperfections, it goes back into the galvanic bath to create what's called a stamper, the thing that will actually press the vinyl records. So the stamper gets formed, and it basically gets formed to fit on the specific press that you're using. And then we basically take a bunch of PVC pellets. They go into an extruder. The extruder heats those PVC pellets up and creates what we call a biscuit or a puck. Furnace has a great video of this process on their website. The puck looks like a little black or colored pack that is sandwiched in between two labels. Those get transferred into the machine and with using about 100 to 150 tons of pressure as well as a heat steam cycle and a cooling cycle, the record is pressed and then it's firmed up with the cooling cycle just enough so when the press opens back up it doesn't fall apart. So you've ever, you know, made a, a waffle and you open up the waffle iron too soon and it falls apart? That's what we're doing with the cooling cycle. We firm up that record just enough so we can pull it open. And then from there, we trim the excess vinyl on the outside, and uh, we stack it and weigh it so it's, uh, it cools nice and flat. So in essence, that's the long and short of how a record is uh, pressed. Obviously, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of science that goes into a lot of these things. But, uh, you know, for a layman, I think that kind of explains a little bit better how a record is pressed. So it's not an easy process, and even after all of the pre-production steps involved in actually making the stamper, it still takes significantly longer to stamp out a vinyl record than it does to produce a CD. So unlike a CD, which nowadays you can, you can make a CD in 1.5 seconds, let's say, um, a vinyl record, depending on the thickness and depending on the, the, the machine that it's running on, um, let's say with an automated press, you're probably getting a record every 25 to 35 seconds, sometimes a little longer. Um, for a 7-inch record, you might be looking at 10 to 15 seconds, but it's not a second and a half. So you're looking at uh, when you're, you're, a record press is, is most of them are old. They, I think the last time uh, presses have been made in bulk was uh, the late 70s, early 80s. So they, they, they aren't necessarily running 100% of the time. They might be up maybe 80, 85% of the time. But, you know, there's still a lot of, you know, starts and stops that you have to deal with. So um, while you might get a record every 25 or 30 seconds, you also have a lot of records you have to scrap just because, you know, there's quality issues. You want to make sure that you're only um, shipping out the, the records of past quality control. And then you just have, you know, other, other issues with the press that you have to work through. So, you know, your throughput is maybe, you know, 75 to 80 percent of what you press. But of course, before you can even begin to press vinyl, you must locate a functional vinyl press. 
Simply put, when the compact disc exploded, many of the world's vinyl presses were forgotten or destroyed. One urban myth had EMI in the UK so confident in the demise of vinyl that they used their old vinyl presses as filler in the foundation of their new office buildings. When vinyl suddenly reemerged as a profitable endeavor, the demand for those forgotten and dusty vinyl presses returned, and so began a type of American Pickers-style search for vinyl presses in basements and forgotten factories. So about a year ago, uh, we located some presses down in Mexico City. Furnace works with a high-quality press in Germany to physically produce their records, but they've been looking for more vinyl presses so they can set up a pressing plant in Virginia. And they had been in operation in Mexico you know, up until the early 90s. And uh, a gentleman's father who runs a plastic business uh, purchased them thinking that he might be able to use the extruders for something else. They bought it. They, they figured out that uh, it, it wasn't necessarily going to work. And it just so happens that the gentleman also owned a record label. And it was mostly dance music. And he thought, well, you know, if we can't use it for this, maybe we'll start a pressing plant. And he called me and said, hey, listen, you know, if, if you are interested in us pressing some vinyl for you and your customers, let us know. Furnace is known for pressing high-quality records, something that isn't easy, especially on older machines. It was highly unlikely that the inexperienced pressers in Mexico City would be able to accomplish a high enough quality press. So Eric extended an offer to purchase the Mexican presses. So I got a call a few weeks later for the gentleman saying, hey, uh, I think we're going to sell them. Are you interested? And we said, yes, of course. And these are the same machines that we're using um, at our partner's facility out in Germany. So I knew the equipment very well. I knew that, you know, once we refurbed it, it would be perfect equipment that, you know, would go into our facility here in the U.S. So we purchased it. It was this whole telenovela story about getting them up here, which I won't get it, go into, but it was quite quite an adventure. And now they're actually being refurbished and we're going to be setting up a new facility here in Fairfax, Virginia. If there's so much pent-up demand, why not manufacture new presses? We heard from Billy Fields that there are a few entities building newly manufactured presses. Why not use these new presses rather than dusty, found-in-a-basement machines? Uh, yes, we've we've actually talked to a, a couple different companies uh, who are making new presses, and, and actually we built a brand new press in Germany uh, starting about three and a half years ago. We 3D scanned an existing Tulex Alpha press and then basically built everything new around it, new controllers, new sleevers, new cutting mechanisms, basically took all of the, the issues that we had with the old machines and improved on them. So what we learned during that process is, A, it's very expensive. Unless you're making hundreds of machines, it's in the, the neighborhood of four to 500,000 euros per machine to make a high-quality automated press. And even with the core of the press being something that we're very, very, we know very well because the Tulux Alpha presses, we have uh, 10 of them in Germany. Even with that being the base of this machine, we still had about two years of working out all the bugs. 
So what we decided was when we were going to build the, the plant here, we didn't want to uh, purchase something that had not yet been in the marketplace. We wanted to buy something that we were familiar with that we knew we could refurbish and get into, into service right away and not worry about any of the bugs that, that might creep up like we you know, found in, our, in the press that we built in Germany. So I'm hoping that these presses that are being built are going to work great because the industry needs as much capacity as we can get. I think it's better for the industry um, for new plants to go online and t for either new or old machines to be uh, set up because that creates uh, a shorter lead time. I think it also allows you know more records to get in the marketplace and you know it, it basically creates a much more healthy market both for labels, bands, and also for the pressing plants. Despite all these obstacles, Furnace is doing well. Last year, we pressed about 3 million uh, records. This year, we're on tap to produce about the same, if not a little bit more. Right now, our, our biggest obstacle of growing is just capacity. Uh, if we had more capacity to play with, I'm sure we would be able to increase that number. It is a, a good time to be in the vinyl business. The growth is still strong. The industry is maturing as well, both from a, a label and a artist perspective. You know, vinyl is looked at as not only, you know, something that the artists love, but it's now a profit center for a lot of bands that couldn't make any money selling records. You know, for a long time, streaming or online sales just didn't generate the kind of revenue that, you know, physical media in the past has, has uh, generated. So having vinyl and having people get back into a physical format allows people to, you know, make a living selling and creating music. Despite a decade of growth, vinyl still faces obstacles. The process of vinyl manufacturing takes much, much longer than CD manufacturing, and digital files have no manufacturing delay. Existing vinyl presses are old and require a veteran operator to even approach efficiency and a highly trained staff to fix them when they break. New presses are on the way, but are expensive and often don't function as well as the old ones. And yet, the difficulty surrounding the manufacturing process of vinyl somehow seems to add value to the end product. Digital files are instantaneous. Vinyl requires time, commitment, and care. The human touch. And maybe that's exactly what the consumer wants. Here's Eric Astor. I, you know, I, I think that it's going to continue to grow, and um, at some point it might plateau. Let's say in the next three to five years, I, I think it might plateau. I don't think it's going to go away like it did before because, as I've said, if you kill a technology and it comes roaring back, it's usually usually there to stay. And I don't think that necessarily vinyl is going to ever overtake any other streaming or CDs or anything else. I mean, it's just too small of a niche product. It's never going to come back in a, in a, in a way that was in the 60s and 70s. But it's going to have its place. And I think that for those people that have been introduced to vinyl, again, reintroduced or you know, discovered it for the first time, I think they, they know that there's something special about it. And when someone sits down and actually hears a well-pressed record on a decent sound system, they see and hear such a qualitative advancement in the way that they listen to music that they can't go back. And Billy Fields. I think that at the heart, 
of it for me, it really highlighted that as an industry, the music business industry, we needed to pay more attention to what music fans wanted. Now, that's not a new lesson at all because Napster taught us all that lesson in a really harsh way. And I think that we as an industry didn't respond well to it. But I think that with vinyl coming back, I think one of the things that we can learn from it is it is important to listen to what your fans are saying. And that's from fan to artist direct interaction, but it's also from the market itself back to the record labels and the distributors. So listen to what the fans have to say. And if they say they want a fantastic record that has been remastered from the original master tape and cut by uh, an extraordinary sound engineer, mastering engineer, so that you can listen to it on a turntable that costs more than a house, because that's what they want to hear, then we should figure out a way that we can do that. And we should also figure out, by the way, how to make a great sounding punk rock record for 15 bucks so that anybody can turn it up real loud and cause a ruckus. That's all the time we have for this episode of Musonomics. Thank you to our guests, Josh Friedlander of the RIAA, Billy Fields of Warner Music Group, and Eric Astor of Furnace. The Musonomics podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. This episode was produced by Sam Behrens and Travis Fodor with help from Natalia Karavasili and Samantha Tubner. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening to Musonomics. Music